Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Emergency Trauma Mamas podcast. And I'm so happy that you could join me for another episode. And today we're going to switch gears just a little bit because our weather is finally changing where I live in the Midwest. So we're going to talk a little bit about an environmental emergency such as environmental hyperthermia in an infant. So we're switching gears a little bit from my normal um, trauma scenarios, but I feel like we need to really hone in on things as far as subjects that happen based on weather. Because when our weather changes, we know that we get different cases and that's something that really needs to be focused on. And unfortunately, we do live in a society where Sometimes parents, they they forget that their kid is in the vehicle. And then we, as emergency personnel and nurses and paramedics and PAs, we deal with the aftermath of that. So the chances are that you could be getting an environmental hyperthermic infant um, relatively soon because the weather is getting warm. So let's talk a little bit about this. And also, if you're interested in um, finding this actual scenario or simulation itself, I did find it online, and it's based by um, AAP and ASAP. So American Academy of Pediatrics and ASAP has um, approximately 15 to 20 different simulations that I actually bookmarked probably about a year and a half ago. And if you're running sims in your academic facility or you're running your sim lab in your academic hospital, these are wonderful. If you're stumped and you don't know, hey, you know, I really want to run a sim on like DKA and cerebral edema and kids, you don't have to look any further. So um, shout out to Dr. Cheng, Dr. Adam Cheng and Dr. Mark Adler, who wrote this particular one that we're going to talk about. So These are awesome sims, and they're just wonderful. Um, Like I said, if you're running sims or you need a sim or you need ideas for sims, this is like one of the places I go. So let's talk a little bit about this. Um, A couple of learning objectives that um, hopefully you will gain after the completion of this podcast are recognizing the features of environmental hyperthermia, which in this case it's pretty much a gimme because of the history of the child. So, you know, you're going to get that from your medics. That one's not very hard, but recognizing the features, they're really speaking more to what you're going to see clinically um, and how to treat it. So demonstrating the steps, steps in the initial treatment and stabilization of a hyperthermic infant. And so depending on your facility, whether you're a level one, two, or three trauma center or, um, If you're not a trauma center, it doesn't matter, Um, but you would think about, obviously, at some point, if you don't have an in-house NICU or PICU, the minute this kid lands in your emergency department, you want to think, you know, stabilization and transport to a level of higher care. So I want to add that as well, because sometimes, um, sometimes patients, or sometimes I have found that that idea pops into people's heads a little bit later than it should. And the whole point is, if you can't take care of that kid in-house and you don't have, you know you don't have the capability, then you should be getting them out. And hopefully you have transfer agreements in place 
with other facilities that are higher level of care and they can, you know, get this kid to where they need to go uh, for more definitive care. But the minute they come in and you think, oh, you know, we just shut down our PEDS unit or we don't have a PICU or we don't have a NICU, well, then your your clerk needs to be on the phone um, immediately. So the time to consider transfer is the minute that that patient hits the door because we don't want to waste time um, getting them to a higher level of care. So we'll just start with our scenario. Um, you're going to be receiving, you get a call that you're going to get an eight-month-old infant who was unintentionally left in a vehicle for approximately two hours. Um, the temperature outside was approximately 32.2 degrees Celsius, so that's 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So pretty hot. Um, and looking at the kid's history, um, there's nothing really of any notice. Previously healthy, no meds, no allergies, immunizations are up to date. And upon arrival of the paramedics, um, the, the child was apneic, pulseless, and cyanotic. So the paramedics, of course, immediately start CPR, and that's been going on for approximately five minutes. So they started CPR, they're doing BVM and breathing for the kid, and they're bringing the kid to you. Um, So they're running hot, they're getting here as soon as they can. And so now the kid arrives in your recess or trauma room, and you notice you have the tape out and you've got the cart ready to go, the Breslau cart. And the kid arrives and you whip the tape out as soon as the kid gets there. And the heels land about eight kilos. So you open the appropriate color of drawer and you also make sure, I always like to just kind of write like eight kilos somewhere around towards the the actual bottom of the bed. So people don't just run in and say, you know, what color is a kid? What color is a kid? How much the kid? Like, that's kind of annoying when you're in the middle of a code situation. Um, the other thing I like to do is just open the drawer um, that correlates with the kid. And that actually helps alleviate a lot of those people who are kind of running in and crowding in and then starting with the same questions, repetitive questions of, how much does a kid weigh over and over again? When we have the Braslow cart and we have the Braslow tape, it does not assist anybody in a pediatric code. So the more that you can alleviate that anxiety and have that answer kind of just out there for everybody, um, it does help decrease the anxiety in the room. So no matter how many times you've been through pediatric codes or pediatric traumas, Everybody's adrenaline's just a little bit higher and everybody's hands shake just a little bit because even though you've been trained and you know what you're doing, um, the the life of a child hanging in the midst when a, when a kid comes in in a full arrest is just, it's different. So I know you all know what I'm talking about, um, those of you that have been in those situations. So let's kind of walk through our ABCs. So airway, of course... You're just going to continue BVM. The doc's there. He's going to go ahead and do um, RSI. Um, just main, you know, the other thing is, too, this is an eight-month-old infant. So kind of propping something underneath their shoulders a little bit because, you know, their head kind of flops around a little bit. Um, making sure that that 
that OP, make sure that the airway is clear. Um, go, you know, making sure there's no secretions or vomit or anything in there. So clearing and suctioning the airway, of course, with kids is always huge because who knows, this kid could have vomited before um, he passed out. So, of course, you've, you're preparing for RSI, you've got the equipment, your glidoscope, and um, all of your stuff. Um, your ET tube, everything's on your Braslow cart, tells you what you need, and you're ready to go. So, that's the airway we're going to go ahead and initiate RSI. Um, your child is still, of course, apneic. Um, now though, you're, you're, you're sensing that you have faint pulses because you always want to check central pulses and peripheral pulses, right? Well, in this case, you do have a very, very faint, uh, central pulse. And that happened right as the kid was rolling in. Medics were like, Hey, you know what? I think I, I think I got a pulse here. So that part is good. Um, very, very good. So moving through the breathing, you're going to go ahead and the doc's going to go ahead and put the tube in. So you're going to auscultate over the epigastrum. You don't hear any gurgling. Um, you can pop your ET, your end tidal CO2 on right away. Um, if you just have the color change initially, that's fine. But just remember, you have to give, you know, five to six breaths. You actually get the color change. So yellow is yes, gold is good. And, um, but I just like to pop on the end tidal CO2 monitor because it's more accurate. And you can see the waveforms better. So 35 to 45 is normal. Um, you do have adequate chest rise and fall. It's equal. And lung sounds are equal axillary. And you don't hear, um, you don't suspect it's in the right main stem bronchus. And you're good to go. So you've got a good waveform. End tidal CO2 is good. And again, you have good chest rise and fall. So tubes in. Um, but we got to address some other things, right? So they weren't able to get a line, of course, because they were supporting the airway and the breathing. And so obviously the secondary nurse is putting the kid on the monitor and you still have that central pulse, um, but it's not very strong. And basically the kid is tube now. And we're going to pop them on the vent. Now, your core temperature that um, somebody came in and just did a real quick rectal, it's 107.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's 42 degrees Celsius. Um, now, you finally do have the kid on the monitor. Now, you do see, oh, okay, well, we have more pulse than what we thought. Um, heart rate's 185. Is tubed and vented. Um, BP 62 over 50. And O2 sats coming up. Because initially it was just BVM and now he's on the vent. So um, it's coming up into the 9800 range. So now you still have the cap refill is 6 to 7 seconds. So and you do have a weak pulse that's it's centrally it's weak. It's not real strong. Um, you know and there is a deficit between central and peripheral pulses which already tells you that you're in, in trouble, right? Um, CNS, obviously, uptunded, unresponsive. Now we've got um, paralytics on board, too. But even prior to that, when the medics had the patient and they were rolling in, you noticed that there was no, no movement, um, nothing really responsive. So um, probably still give a pediatric GCS score of, you know, three. And now the next thing is... 
establish access, right? Because we have no access. And so with a kid like this, um, you're not going to mess around with three sticks in 90 seconds is what typically we talk about in EMPC in the past. But with the um, invention of the I.O., Um, With the easy I.O., with the access, with being able to put that in really quickly, that's the only thing that I would go, I wouldn't even mess around peripherally. This kid's in trouble, and you know it. So, and another thing I want to mention, too, is I'm not sure where all of you are checking your capillary refill, but I did learn long time ago from a very, very knowledgeable pediatric intensivist to always stick your thumb on the bottom of their heel, Um, Number one, because it's the most distal point of their body. And number two, it's just so much more, um, it's easily seen. You can easily see if it's blanchable and how long it takes actual cap refill. So it is the most accurate. And on this kid, you've got a cap refill of six to seven seconds. And you do have that differentiation. Um, There is a gap. There's a difference between central and peripheral pulses. So we are in trouble. Um, you're able to get an IO in um, to the left lower extremity, and you're going to go ahead and give your 20 ml per kilo bolus. So the other thing that you notice as you're kind of going through your assessment now, and the secondary is nurse is doing all the lines and tubes and getting your labs sent off, we are able to get some blood. Um, you notice that you've got some coarse crackles by lat when you do listen. So, um, of course, you're going to get a chest x-ray. Abdomen, soft, nothing really going on there. And, of course, the skins are very hot and dry. So, that's what you have when you go through kind of the rest of your um, circulatory status. So, one of the things that you want to look at, too, is your pressure, your blood pressure is 62 over 50. And so, how many boluses do you think you're going to give this kid before you see... Um, a change in the blood pressure. Mm, hard to tell, right? We don't know the hydration status of this kid. Um, however, remember, the temp is 107.6, so we do have, you know, the rectal suppository was put in immediately after that. So Tylenol's on board. Um, but this kid was in a hot vehicle for approximately two hours. So fair to say that... Dry is dry, so very dry. And I mean, it depends on the emergency physician and, you know, what they want. But um, you can give a couple 20 ml per kilo challenges, but at some point, you know, you have to consider pressors. So you want to, you know, consider dobutamine versus dopamine and primarily a alpha agonist at this point. So that's something else that needs to fall on your radar at this point is how many boluses are we going to challenge this kid with before we start doing other things. And now I want to also add that there are other ways to cool the patient. So, you know, there's cooling blankets, there's ice, you know, you can throw ice in their axilla and their groin um, if they're not putting like a central line or something in obviously move the ice for that but there's other ways to cool the child so I would be initially initially I would be doing all of those things in addition to thinking about how many boluses are you going to challenge this child with um, until you're going to wait to see a response to move to pressors so Um, Moving on to D and E, so disability and exposure, we're going to go ahead and um, 
we're going to check our AVPU and our neuro, you know, you're not going to, you're going to have to chart T for tubed or I for intubated or whatever your facility requires because the pediatric GCS is not going to be accurate, correct? Because we've given our paralytics and, you know, the kids on, he's intubated, sedated and ventilated. Um, We probably didn't need any sedation at this point. We haven't given anything, but we're not going to have an accurate neuro status. So you do need to address it, but you also need to speak to the fact that this kid has, you know, drugs on board. But I'm a big stickler for um, pupils and really charting that along the way because here's the thing. We don't know who, what, when, where, how. We don't know what happened before this child was left in a hot vehicle. We don't know if there's other signs of abuse. So if you've got sclera with um you know tiny punctate hemorrhages you know you start thinking shaken baby and you know head ct and all of those types of things in addition to the fact that you just don't know um in today's world in today's society we cannot be sure um of abuse or not so we always especially with this type of case now maybe mom was just super forgetful and had too much going on but um, check the pupils, check the sclera, um, you know, look in the ears, look in the eyes, um, all of those things and chart it as such. So make sure that your pupils are equal round and reactive to light. Um, again, have the index of suspicion for abuse and, um, go ahead and of course the clothes would already have been cut off, but make sure that you're also initializing your active cooling measure. So the cooling blanket, ice bags, um, Go ahead and turn the heat down in the trauma room, which is one of our favorite things to do. Um, We don't like to turn the heat up, even though it's the right thing for the patients. Um, We're very uncomfortable, but that's life. And um, again, monitor that rectal temperature. So you've got a Foley temp probe uh, for your pediatric patient, hopefully, so you can just continue to monitor the core temperature as it's coming down. Um, so moving on to some other medical management things that we need to consider, of course, glucose. So hypoglycemia is going to be huge. Um, I would have done a heel stick glucose on this kid shortly after we secured the airway breathing. And then while they're drilling for an IO, I would have done a heel stick for a glucose real quick because, Once we get that IO in, if the sugar is like 15, which I suspect that it's low, we need to address that right quick. Because remember, children don't have those huge amounts of um, glucose stores. So when they get hypoglycemic, again, it's it's more detrimental than it is for an adult. Um, It's bad for everybody, but it's worse for kids because they get depleted so quickly. And for a child to be hyperthermic for over two hours, um, it's going to be pretty severe. So CPK, right, because we're thinking rhabdo, right? Rhabdomyolysis, electrolytes, um, all of our cardiac stuff, and creatinine, right? Because if you have rhabdomyolysis, what happens with the myoglobin that's secreted from the muscles well, it's a huge molecule and it will send the kid into renal failure as well. So creatinine, CBC, LFTs, and I guess blood glucose. Um, and make sure that you're getting um, your EKG as well. 
So, um, moving on, um, we're going to, of course, reassess everything on our patients. So, reassessing our airway, breathing, and our circulation. Um, once you put that Foley in, go ahead and send that off for UA because they're going to need to look for myoglobin. And again, uh, renal function if we're starting uh, DOPA. And usually two, 2 to 10 mics per kilo per um, is usually around the area where they're going to start. And so now let's get our new set of um, temperature. We Our new set of vitals, excuse me. Our temperature is 105. So we've come down a little bit. Heart rate of 169, uh, respiratory rate tubed and vented, so we're good there. Blood pressure is still 65 over 59. And now we'll say that we've given, you've given two crystalloid challenges at this point, and you're going to go ahead and move on to DOPA, whether it's 5 to 10 or 2 to 10 or wherever you want to start, usually 2 and a half, 3. Um, some will just start at 5 mics, but, you know, time to move on because our pressure is not budging. So we filled the tank, but nothing's happening. Um, now all of a sudden your respiratory, your lungs are clear. Um, CNS is unchanged. Um, drugs are still on board. Um, cardiovascular wise, you still have that differentiation. You still have, a, um, there's a difference between the central and peripheral pulses. And the ones that you do have are weak. So abdomen's still soft, non-distended. Um, you went ahead and put an OG down shortly thereafter that, that the kid was intubated, of course. And your skins are still pretty warm and hot and dry. So your glucose comes back and it's like 15. So you go ahead and correct that. Your electrolytes come back. Your sodium is 148. Your potassium is 4.6. Your chloride is 110. And your calculated bicarb is 8. And your calcium is 1.01. So now you're going to go ahead and just kind of reaffirm what you already know. But again, we've done some more interventions. So we want to just reassess. And now your child is actually a little bit better. And there is some improvement. Now your core temperature is showing 103.3. Uh, that's, that's with the cooling measures and with everything else. Um, your heart rate is 159, um, again, intubated and on the vent, so you're good there. Um, BP is still 63, so you're going to need to do something about that. Um, oxygen saturation, 98%, 98 to 100, and your sinus tack, uh, no ectopy on the monitor. CNS unchanged, but your cap refill is now 4 seconds, but you still have uh, weak peripheral pulses, but centrally... You're okay, but peripherally is still weak. And respiratory, you're good, you're clear, and skins are still warm to touch. So you get some labs back. Your CPK comes back at 400. Um, and your UA is not really hmm, anything big. Um, but you do have to consider further management for this rhabdo, right? Because remember... Um, again, that myoglobin molecule is so, so large, it will clog up the renal tubules all day long. So then your kids in acute renal failure on top of everything else. Um, again, so your airway, breathing, circulation, your pressure is still hanging around 63 systolic. So you need to titrate your pressors, whatever your choice was, whether it was dobutamine or dopa. Uh, a lot of um, docs will just go to dopa. 
and consider Lasix or Manitol for this rhabdo, right? Because we need some kind of loop diuretic or osmotic diuretic. And if you have uh, PICU intensivist, this would be the time to have them come down. Um, if you do not, like I said in the very beginning of this podcast, you would have reached out right away and said, look, I've got this super sick kid um, with hyperthermia and we need to transfer him out. So if he can go by air, that would be preference, uh, my preference to go by air, um, get him out as soon as possible. If not, um, if weather was not permitting, then of course he'll have to go by ground. So um, you kind of make that phone call and the kid is actually becoming more stable. Um, so you're going to arrange for transfer, dispo to the PICU. And your last set of vitals are uh, temperature is 39.2 Celsius. Um, temp is 102.6. Heart rate 155. Respirers, you know, on the vent. Uh, blood pressure is up to 78 uh, systolic. And, you know, your stats are good on the vent. So, um, still sinus tack on the monitor, no ectopy, CNS unchanged because we still have our RSI drugs on board. And now your cap refill is three seconds. Um, you still do have a little bit of a weaker pulse peripherally, but not as weak as it was. So, um, still, you're still clear. Lung sounds are clear to auscultation in all fields. So that's good. And your skins, of course, are still warm, but you're not at 107 anymore. You're down to 102. So looking at this case, um, we did kind of go a little fast. However, um, some things that you just need to kind of consider that would be some common pitfalls. And for me, having worked at you know big trauma centers and um, smaller trauma centers, the biggest thing I think is the consideration for transfer to a higher level of care the minute that the kid hits the door. So no NICU, no PICU, no pediatric intensivist. So we need to get this kid out to a higher level of care, like I said, and they need to go yesterday. So by by air or by ground. Um, and again, like I said, most places you already have those transfer agreements in place and the clerk knows who to call um, to get the approval. And then the physician would have that, that doc the MD to MD phone call would happen relatively quickly in order to facilitate facilitate that transfer. So that's what um, really concerns me about these really super sick kids because, you know, they're going to show up anywhere. Just show up in your emergency department tomorrow. So just because you're not a big academic teaching hospital doesn't mean these kids won't come to you, but you do need to know how to treat them. And so that's when you fall back on your your Braslau and your PALS and your ENPC and all of that. So thinking about pathophysiologically what's going to happen to these children is if you don't aggressively, actively cool them, you know, their temperature is going to go up and up and up and up. Um, again, and, you know, if you you kind of forget to look at, well, what's what's the sequela of hyperthermia, which would be, of course, electrolyte disturbances. So even though this child was not having like a lot of PVCs or throwing like weird, having like a weird rhythm. Potentially that could happen, right? Because your your potassium, your calcium, your mag, all of that is going to be altered um, by hyperthermia. 
And again, hypoglycemia, I can't speak to that enough um, because sometimes it just falls off the radar. However, we know that with kids, they don't have that huge amount of sugar storage in their body, so they get depleted very quickly, which is another reason why I say, you know, just get a quick heel stick. You don't need a whole tube of blood. <laughs> um, just get that quick heel stick, and you know, you can just see what the sugar is really quick. It's just a point of care test, but it's so critically important to these ill children um, when they come in because if you don't correct it, uh, you're chasing your tail with everything else. And again, the rhabdomyolysis, which we know can happen quite easily with a child who's been exposed to high temperatures in a very, very hot, hot car um, for over two hours. So um, very, very worried that you know, you don't, if you don't flush them with enough fluids, if you don't um, support them with getting, you know, osmotic diuretic or loop diuretic, then of course they can go into acute renal failure as well. So just keeping those things on your radar. And that is all I have for today. And thank you so much for listening. And good morning, good evening, good night. Take care and have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye.